After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early. Well, it was still dark. And saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter, I love that, and reached the tomb first. Stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. And Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth which had been on Jesus' head. Not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head, one at the feet. They said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if if you've carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabbani, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. I will say something that I said last Sunday in case you missed it, okay? When we, when we decided to preach the biblical account 
of Jesus' death and resurrection this month, I promise we did not get our holidays mixed up. Uh, somebody asked me this morning, Matthew, are you going to are you going to preach the the birth of Christ on Easter Sunday? Is this is this where we're headed? And I said, no, no, no. Um, at least we'll see. We'll see. No promises, right? We we've been studying the Gospel of John as a church uh, for the better part of. Uh, well, if you go back to when we started, before COVID, uh, beginning of 2019, took a little break in there, but, but in the providence of God, we came to chapter 19 at the height of Advent. And I just want to remind you, if you're not already aware of this, why we decided to stay the course, in case you think I really did get my holidays mixed up, okay? When John writes in John 1.14, listen, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. John himself is doing something, friends. He's connecting Christmas and Easter. Okay? What, what do we celebrate at Christmas? That the word, the eternal son of God, the self-revelation of the father, took on flesh and was born as a man. That's Christmas. What do we celebrate at Easter? That that the glory of God is not most clearly seen in a, a stable in Bethlehem, but at a cross and an empty tomb outside Jerusalem. That's Easter. Think of it this way. Christmas is the opening movement of a symphony, for all you classical music lovers out there, that that soars to a climax on Easter Sunday. Because if Jesus, think about this, if Jesus had not been born, he could not have died for us, right? And if he had not died for us, then he could not have triumphed gloriously over the grave. But because he was born, and he did die, and he did rise victorious from the grave, we know something, brothers and sisters, that if we're holding fast to him by faith, if you're doing that right now, then you too have overcome death. You you have been raised with Jesus to newness of life, and your own future bodily resurrection is guaranteed in him. Think of it this way, okay? The empty tomb on every Sunday of the year is the foundation of our faith. Every Sunday of the year. Not not just when spring and bunnies and Easter rolls around. Every Sunday of the year because it floods our sorrows with joy. That that Christmas song we sing, joy to the world. We, We couldn't sing that, friends, apart from Easter Sunday. In case you haven't figured it out, the joy of whatever material gifts you received yesterday is going to fade. Maybe before the batteries run out, okay? But, but the joy of knowing and loving and serving an eternal risen king doesn't end. So let's follow John's lead here as he helps us appreciate the wonder of his birth from the vantage point of his resurrection, okay? 
The, the details, if you look at chapter 19, beginning verse 38 through 42, the, the details that John gives us here of, of his, the Lord's burial, they really set the stage for what follows, okay? So don't miss this. John, John introduces us to two men who were members of the Sanhedrin, the, the ruling Jewish council, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus. What do we know about these guys? Well, well Joseph was a follower of Jesus, albeit what? secretly, John tells us, for fear of the Jews, in verse 38. And Nicodemus, who was he? Well, he was the Pharisee who came to Jesus with with his spiritual questions by night, back in John chapter 3. So what do we know about both these guys? Bottom line, both of them were very familiar with the fear of man. With, With a craving for security through the approval of other people. But after Jesus' death, something starts to change in these guys. And it's, it's not all at once, but it's, it's clear, it's noticeable. Men, men who previously hesitated to confess the name of Christ are, are now demonstrating in, in an incredibly courageous sacrificial way, loyalty to Jesus. Think about this. It it took incredible courage for Joseph, Verimathea, to to leverage his social status and go to the Roman governor and ask for that body. Do you know Rome, almost without exception, always left criminals crucified for sedition on the cross so the vultures could eat them. He's not asking Pilate to do what Pilate normally does, to courage. Nicodemus devoted a stunning amount of wealth to preparing Jesus' body for burial, 75 pounds worth of myrrh and aloes. Just to put it in perspective, that's like way over a year's wages and then some. So what are these guys doing? Well, working together, they're, they're honoring Jesus with the customary Jewish burial rites. They're, they're tightly binding his body with strips of linen cloth covered in spices. You've got cloth and spices and cloth and spices. And then they, they laid him on a stone bench within a garden tomb, most likely one of their own. But don't miss the location, okay? Where's the tomb? It's in a garden. What happened in the Garden of Eden back in Genesis 3? Well, our sin against the Lord made a place overflowing with life, corrupted by death. So what's Jesus doing here? What's going on in John 19 and 20? Well, well, Jesus is entering our broken world, our dying garden, as the second Adam to, to recreate and to restore the life we once enjoyed with God. 
It's a clue from John of what's about to happen here. And and notice John is careful to note, look at verse 41, the end of that verse, that that Joseph and Nicodemus placed Jesus in a tomb. What does he say? In which no one had yet been laid. Why does that matter? I mean, just, okay, get to the point where he walks out and everybody goes, yay! No, why does that matter? Well, because it tells us that Jesus' body was the only one in the tomb, right? Right? It eliminates the possibility that someone other than Jesus rose from that grave. There's no, to put it rather crassly, there's no corpse confusion going on here. So Friday night passes. Saturday evening passes. Sunday morning is at hand. But John doesn't use the word Sunday. He simply calls it what? Look at chapter 20, verse 1. The first day of the week. Why not just say Sunday? You need an editor. <laughs> well, back to Genesis, right? What did God do on the first day of the week? He began his work of creation, he got it started. He kicked it off. What what is about to happen on the first day of the week in John 20? It's it's the dawn of the new creation. God God is recreating. All the details John is including here point us to the fact that, that God is on the move recreating something that we destroyed. The stage is set. And as verse one of chapter 20 opens, we arrive at our first major point in this passage. Here it is. The reality of Jesus' resurrection confirms the truth of his word. It's the first thing John is going to take pains in chapter 20, verse 1 through chapter 20, verse 10 to drive home the reality of Jesus' resurrection. And I might add the historical reality confirms the truth of his word. So what's going on? Well, early Sunday morning, finds a woman named Mary Magdalene at the tomb. In Mark 16, 1, we're told that she came with another Mary. There's a lot of Marys rolling around here. Don't get them mixed up, but the mother of James and Salome. And these women had, had seen where Jesus' body was laid and arrived with spices and ointment of their own. We know some other things about Mary of Magdalene, at least. We know three days earlier, she was actually standing at the cross, watching the Lord die. And that, that her devotion was not accidental. If you read Luke 8, verse 2, you'll learn that earlier in Jesus' public ministry, Jesus had cast seven demons out of Mary Magdalene. Why is that helpful to know? Well, because this woman coming to the tomb in the dark has already experienced the power of God in her life. She's coming in with that, okay? And yet when she comes to the tomb and and sees the stone removed from the opening, look at verse two. What, What does she immediately conclude? Without inquiring any further, she runs back to Peter and the other disciple whom Jesus loved, presumably John, and says, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. Does that surprise you? I mean, why, why not 
Why, why is her first assumption not, he's risen? <laughs> why not start there? Well, on the one hand, friends, her, her response proves that Jesus' disciples didn't make up the story of the resurrection, okay? To, to fit some preconceived notion of what was supposed to happen or, or their desired outcome. Everything in this passage just shouts, Jesus' disciples simply didn't have a category for a human being to die and come back from the grave. No category for that. This is not, well, you know, we, we so wanted it to happen, we sort of saw it or believed it into existence. No, they... This passage is full of reluctant, unbelieving, slow-to-see people like us. But besides their reluctance, I think her response illustrates something else we all have in common, and that is simply that we're all interpreters. We're all interpreters. What, What do I mean by that? Well, think of it this way. Our assessment of what's true in any situation, okay, is never limited to mere facts. Hang with me here, okay? We, we naturally, what do we do? We take what we know or observe, without even thinking about this, and, and we connect the dots in ways that, whatever way feels right or most seems most likely to us. Let me illustrate, okay? If I come home and notice a large dent in the garage door, what are the facts of the situation? Yes, Josh. There is a large dent in the garage door. That's a fact, right? But my assessment of what is true right away isn't, isn't limited to the facts. Where do I go? Well, I instinctively add my own interpretation. My wife must have hit that with a van. <laughs> We're done parking in the garage. <laughs> or my boys must have hit that with the easy roller. We are done with all these easy rollers, right? Here's another scenario. See how he's interpreting? Here's another one. Say, say a friend writes you a sweet note for your birthday, okay? But when the next year rolls around, you don't get anything from them. Not even a text message with a little emoticon thing. So, so you decide, here's the interpretation, right? I must have become less important to that person than I used to be. Or... I must have done something to offend them, right? We, you never consider that they might be traveling or caring for sick children or, or putting in so many hours at work that they didn't even stop to write a birthday note for their spouse. We, what's my point? We, we, don't, we don't just think or feel or act according to the facts of the situation. We think and we feel and act according to our interpretation of the facts. Notice here that Mary's instinctive interpretation, 
this is sobering, friends, had nothing to do with God or what God might be doing. It had everything to do with what men, with what other people are able to do. And I would simply observe that so often we are no different than that. We're no different. So beware, friend, of of any interpretation of reality, okay, that fails to take into account the power and presence of the God who is here. Beware of that this year. Of any interpretation that that presents itself to you, (laughs) but is strikingly, what's strikingly absent in that interpretation? Anything that has anything to do with the power and presence of God. Because if you see a dent in your garage door, you can know God is up to something good. (laughs) Even if it doesn't feel like that, right? Or if you don't get the card you wanted, you can know God is up to something good. Think of it this way, okay? The, The way of wisdom always begins with looking to the Lord for help to interpret our world and our thoughts and our feelings in ways that are consistent with the truth of his presence and his power. But having said that, let's, let's not get stuck there. Let's also praise God, Kingsway, that our godless interpretations of reality don't change the historical reality of an empty tomb. They don't change that. So so when Peter and John hear Mary's report, they they take off running. And John beats Peter to the tomb. I'll resist the temptation to make comments about that. He simply sees the linen cloth. John does, and in a pile where Jesus' body once lay, but he doesn't actually go inside the tomb. Well, surprise, surprise, Peter takes a little different approach. He gets to the tomb and he just charges in in typical style and he he sees not only the linen cloths lying on the bench, but also the folded face cloth in a different place. It had been tied around Jesus' head. Those eyewitness details are not random, friends. Okay? If you're going to steal a body, let's just go through the possibilities here, okay? To, To recover a fortune, no joke, invaluable linen and spices. You don't leave that stuff behind, right? The very things they see are the very things a grave robber would have taken. And besides, if his body had been stolen, why would they take time to neatly fold a face cloth? Clearly, Jesus' body wasn't stolen, Okay, nor did, did Jesus, you know, back to Lazarus in John 11, it's clear he, he didn't walk out of the tomb and then have to have somebody else unbind him like Lazarus did, right? Why not? Because if that were the case, all the linen and stuff would have been outside the grave, not neatly remaining inside the grave. So what, what's the clear implication? Where, where's John pointing us 
as these guys make this discovery that, that before dawn on that Sunday morning, the Son of God rose through his grave clothes. His immortal body no longer bound by the physical limitations of our mortal existence, after which he simply folded up the face cloth and put it in what? A place by itself. I love that. Because it screams that Jesus wasn't in a hurry. I've been lying around for three days. I have got to get back to upholding the universe, you know? No. No, he wasn't in a hurry. He wasn't behind schedule. It's all happening exactly as God purposed it would happen. The infinite worth of Jesus' life. That the life he laid down for us on the cross. What, what's the empty tomb shout? That that exceeded the debt of our sin, friends. His, his spotless righteousness was more than sufficient to atone for our guilt. What, what Jesus declared verbally from the cross. In John 19.30, it is finished. God vindicated in history with an empty tomb. Whereas the Apostle Paul rejoices in Romans 4.25, he was, Jesus, delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Raised for what? Just, just a what? Raised to confirm our right standing with God on account of what Jesus had done. Never in their wildest dreams did Peter or John believe Jesus was going to rise from the grave. They were just trying to put the pieces together like Mary. And yet everything they saw and could not deny confirms the historical reality of an empty tomb. And it establishes the credibility of the matter. Under Jewish law, this too is no accident, which required the presence of two eyewitnesses. So now look at John's response in verse 8. We've established an empty tomb. He follows Peter inside and he saw and believed. What did he believe? It wasn't just the the undeniable fact that the tomb was empty. He believed in Jesus. In the person of Jesus, the, the resurrection, in other words, it flooded his soul with new confidence, new, new assurance that everything Jesus had said about himself was true. That he wasn't just a, a good teacher. He was the Messiah. He was God in human flesh. John, John's decision, this is what he's telling us. John's decision to lean the weight of his life on Jesus, to believe in Jesus, was not a leap in the dark because everything else he had tried hadn't worked, so let's try religion. No. It was a faith informed by and grounded in the historical reality of the resurrection. Was it a belief in process, though? Yeah, absolutely. I would say. Notice John immediately, this is incredibly humble, he notes, at this point, we had yet to recognize how the scriptures, the word of God, established the necessity of the resurrection long before it happened. They didn't get that yet. They they had yet to grasp the promise of passages like Psalm 1610, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, 
Chris read that this morning. Nor let your Holy One see corruption. They, did, they had yet to see Jesus in that. Or, or they, had, they had yet to, to get the implication of John 2.19. What happens there? Well, well, the Jews asked Jesus for a sign of his authority. And what's he say back to them? Guys, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. They didn't connect to all that. It was a, a belief in process. So, so listen carefully. John's personal testimony warns us against the danger of assuming that an immature faith is no faith at all. Be careful, friend. But at the same time, please see this. Notice how John points to the authority and absolute trustworthiness of Scripture even as he's recounting his own experience of the empty tomb. Why is that a big deal? Well, because we're not lacking. When I say we, I'm talking about us, y'all, okay? All of us. We're not lacking for evidence in the truth of the resurrection simply because we have not peered into the empty tomb ourselves. Hear that. That the phrase in verse 9, look there. He must rise from the dead. I love that. That's not grounded in John's personal experience as as real as it was. John doesn't say he must rise from the dead. Why? Because I saw it with my eyes. Or I wanted to believe it. What does he say? He must rise from the dead and he grounds that in the word of the living God. That the very word that, that we hold in our hands today, friends, the, the word of God guarantees the reality of the resurrection. Okay, the, the inviolability of God's plan to save sinners like us through his death and resurrection, destroying the power of sin and death. The word of God guarantees that and the historical fact of the resurrection in response to that word does what? It upholds and vindicates and confirms and validates the truthfulness of God's word, the reliability of God's word. So so the word of God declares, in other words, both what God has done, he has risen from the grave, and the significance of his actions for the salvation of our souls. Listen to Paul, 1 Corinthians 15, 16. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is, It's futile. Feel the weight of that. Not Christ hasn't been raised, but we got Christmas. Your faith is okay. Christ has not been raised. Your faith is futile. And you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep or died in Christ have really perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only. Well, yeah, I believe in Jesus. I go to church because, you know, it just helps me cope with my problems. If that's all we've got, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. Amen? The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, the first garden, so also in Christ, the second garden shall be made alive. 
So the resurrection of Christ, what's John's first point? It, it is a stubborn historical fact that confirms the reliability and truth of God's word. Here's point number two. The power of Jesus' life also turns our sorrow into joy. Turns our sorrow into joy. Let's go back to Mary, because John does. John, at this point, is convinced that the Lord is alive. But Mary's not. Look at verse 11. She remained weeping outside the tomb. Which, if you connect the dots, is apparently after Peter and John have gone back to their homes. And I would simply say that in so many ways, her, her grief reflects a sorrow we all know. We all know the sorrow of living in a world of tombs. A world plagued by trouble without and within. A world where your life and mine is not the way it was meant to be. But, but what do we know about Tombs, friends. We know that in the darkness of tombs is where the glory of God shines brightest. And when Mary eventually stoops to look into this tomb, look at verse 12, she sees something Peter and John did not. She saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head, and one at the feet. What is their very presence? Shout. <laughs> What's it shout? They, they, it confronts her with the fact that this tomb, this darkness over which I am weeping right now, must not be a godless place after all. It's a place where, where God is mightily at work. And though John doesn't come right out and say it, don't miss this, the physical location of the angels echoes and takes us all the way back to Exodus 25, 18, where the Lord told Moses how to build the mercy seat or the cover for the Ark of the Covenant. Listen. And you shall make two cherubim. What are those? Angelic figures of gold, of hammered work you shall make them on the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub on the one end. Notice how specific God is about that. And one cherub on the other end. You don't get to pick, Moses, where you put your cherubs. So what's the Ark of the Covenant he's talking about? Well, if you're not familiar with that, don't worry. It's, it's just a physical box. <laughs> covered in gold that contained the word of God and stayed in the holiest part of God's temple or God's place. It, it remained in what was called the holy of holies. It was the, the room where God most fully revealed his manifest presence. And once a year on the day of atonement, the, the Jewish high priest, and only once a year, would, would go in and sprinkle blood on the mercy seat, 
between the angels to atone for the sins of the people. So what does the very placement of the angels in Jesus' tomb suggest? That the mercy seat, the place where, where the glory of God's presence and power to save, that we never want to factor out of our interpretations, where, where, where those things are most fully revealed, is not in a physical temple, but in a living, risen person. King Jesus, he is the mercy seat, friends. He is the atonement for all our sins. He, he is the immortal God who, in the words of Psalm 99.1, sits enthroned upon the cherubim. A place of death that the bench in that tomb has become ground zero for the saving power of God. And so the angels respond to Mary. Look at verse 13. Not that she got that at the time. With a gentle reproof. Mary, why, why are you weeping? I love the fact they don't, they don't ignore her sorrow, you know? They don't steamroll her in her ignorance or unbelief. They compassionately and lovingly urge her to consider whether she has a better reason for joy right now. And her reply reveals a couple things. Reveals her devotion to Jesus, reveals her, her ignorance of what God has done, and her continued sense of powerlessness in the face of human forces outside her control. They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. But then something prompts her to turn around. I wish I knew what that was. <laughs> I mean, does she sense somebody behind her? Does, does something in the angel's eyes alert her to the fact that maybe I should reconsider my interpretation? <laughs> Look at verse 14. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Is that strange? She didn't know it was Jesus. Her, her physical eyes, her powers of observation and, and human reason were utterly insufficient to see the glory of God when it was literally in front of her. Mary needed the same thing we all do. Exact same thing. She needed the Lord to open her eyes, to see him for who he really, really is. To perceive why she need not weep. To see why, why she, her sorrows had been immeasurably overwhelmed by a greater reason for joy. She's like Hagar in the wilderness in Genesis 21, where she's got a well of provision and life for her and her son close at hand. But until Yahweh opens her eyes, she's utterly blind to it. But Jesus, as always, takes the initiative. Look at verse 15. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Same, same gentle rebuke as the angels, except he presses a little further. He adds, whom are you seeking? Whom are you seeking? Jesus knows our human griefs and sorrows. 
because he shared our griefs and sorrows. And he knows that they're ultimately meant to lead us not to a change in circumstances, but to a person, to God, the God of all comfort. His, his second question, whom are you seeking, is an invitation for Mary and us to turn our attention away from primarily focusing on our circumstances and back to focusing on our risen king. But Mary's stuck. Do you see that? Jesus is taking initiative. Jesus is being gentle and compassionate. Jesus is inviting her to literally do the one thing she needs to do, and she's stuck. She's like me. She still can't muster up eyes of faith. She's still thinking and feeling and speaking according to the dictates of human reason. So she she goes with, you must be the gardener. I mean, is that just like us? No God in the equation, just people. So tell me where you've laid him and I'll, I'll take him away. No God, just people. Her horizon, her stage. And I love how commenting on this verse, J.C. Ryle says this, listen, how often we are anxious when there is no just cause for anxiety. Think about that. He's right. And yet Jesus is so, he's so gentle and patient, even in response to Mary's inability to see or or to perceive it, that he's the true gardener, right? Who brings life out of what is dead. He he has the same heart toward us today, friends. So what makes the difference? Well, Jesus calls Mary by her name. Mary didn't know it was Jesus. Jesus. Her, her perception of him was woefully inadequate. But Jesus knew it was Mary. His knowledge of her was perfect. And when he spoke her name, the lights came on in her dark and troubled soul. Isaiah 43.1, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You're mine. John 10, verse 3. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. What what was that one word, Mary? It was an eye-opening word of grace. That's what it was. Verse 16, Jesus said to her, Mary, she turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabbi, which means teacher, friend, Jesus is still in the business of calling names today. Hebrews 3.15, so today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart, friend. He knows you completely. He loves you perfectly. He, he lived for you. He died for you. He rose from the grave for you so you could live forever with him. Do, do you hear his voice, friend? Are, are you beginning to perceive, maybe for the first time in your life, the, the glory of his goodness? If you are, do not hold back. 
Don't, don't turn away. Cry out to Jesus with Mary. Lean the weight of your life on a power to save that death itself could not destroy. But notice Jesus did way more than just show Mary he was alive. He turned her eyes to the work he was about to complete. Look at verse 17. Mary, do not cling to me. Do not hold on to me as if my my physical presence, my physical body is, is all that you need. Mary, I still have work to accomplish. What's that? For I have not yet ascended to the Father. I'm, I'm about to return to where I came from. Why? Because I promised I would do that. The whole farewell discourse. Why? Because there in the courtroom of heaven itself, in the presence of God the Father, Mary, I am going to intercede for you. I'm going to pour out all the blessings of the gospel, all the blessings of the salvation that I have won for you, Mary, beginning with the gift of the Holy Spirit. John 14, verse 16, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Why why is he turning Mary's attention and ours to all the privileges and blessings of his ascended reign? Because through the Spirit, King Jesus is with you in a far more intimate and greater way than he was even then with Mary. It's the Spirit, Christian, who who applies all the benefits of your salvation to your soul. Starting with what? The stunning privilege of being adopted into the family of God. And made a child of the living God. Verse 17, I am ascending to my father, notice, and your father. To my God and your God. You realize nobody under the old covenant before Jesus came would ever have dreamed of calling God their father. It's one of the most precious gifts we have received as those who've been redeemed through the blood of Christ. So so Jesus says, take heart, Mary. Your God is not dead. He is alive because I'm alive. You're not alone in this world. You have a father in heaven who loves you dearly and will never leave you or forsake you. Even when you feel like you're alone, Mary, you're his. He's yours. He's he's your portion. He's your joy. He's your coming king. Because I live, you too will live. And when your body dies, you will come home to me to wait for the day when I make all things new and give you a resurrected body just like my glorious body. But until then, he gives her a mission. This is a good way to begin a new year, friends. Because it's the same mission he's given us. He calls her to be his messenger. Look at verse 17 again. Go to my brothers and say to them, I'm ascending to my father and to your father, to my God and your God. Go and say. Go and say. Go and say something, Mary. Encourage your fellow members of the family of God with the good news of the gospel. Remind them of the work I've accomplished. Remind them of of all I'm doing even now as the risen king who reigns. And remind them again and again, Mary, of their unshakable identity as children of God. The power of Jesus' life 
These la- this last section is turning Mary's sorrow into joy. That's what he's doing. How did it happen? Well, he spoke an opening, eye-opening word of grace, right? He announced the good news of a new spiritual identity in Christ. And then he gave her and us a reason for living, a mission until he returns. And he did all of that before an empty tomb. Why? Why there? Because the empty tomb is the foundation of our faith. Flooding our sorrows with joy. It's what assures us that, that Jesus is who he says he is. And none who open him will, will ever be put to shame. It's what assures us that because he rose, we too will rise. And that our faith in him is not waiting to be vindicated. It has already been vindicated at an empty tomb. And that your salvation is secure, Christian. And so if you're a member of Kingsway in particular, and I know a lot of us aren't here today, but you get the benefit of this exhortation, okay? I have a charge for you. Your fellow members in this church need you to do for them the same thing Jesus told Mary to do. Feel the weight of this. More than anything else in the next 12 months, you need to, one, what do we all need to do for each other? Speak the truth to one another about who the ascended Christ is and what he is doing in us and around us. And two, remind each other of all the spiritual privileges and blessings that are ours as a result of number one. (laughs) Starting with what? Our identity in Christ as God's beloved children. Look at verse 18. She went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord and that he had said these things to her. What what is Mary doing? She's, She's sharing her experience of God's work. She's telling them what God is doing and she's declaring the truth of God's word. She's telling them who they are as a result. So hear this King's way. As we go into a new year, our job as a church is not, nor will it ever be, to try to fix everybody's problems all around us or make all the hard situations and feelings go away. Praise God that's not our job, right? That, that is a crushing weight. That's a Messiah-sized weight. Our job, your mission, is to keep pointing your brothers and sisters to Jesus and the life we have in him. Why? Well, I guess that's all I can do. No. <laughs> Why? Because he's not dead. He's alive forevermore. Let's pray. Lord, we're so grateful that you're not dead, that you are alive forevermore. And we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would ground our joy in the actual foundation of our faith the empty tomb, and that with our joy fixed there, you would send us out like Mary to announce the truth of your work and the truth of your word and to keep doing that over and over and over again because every day we live on this earth is another day we know you are still alive. 
and you're still reigning and you're still interceding. You're still on the throne. Lord Jesus, make us a church that in 22 wakes up every morning across the city and the, the biggest thought, the, the loudest voice that fills our gaze and overwhelms our ears. Lord, may it be today, Jesus Christ is alive. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.